Welcome to another edition of the Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 Policing in Oregon Book Club. Like always, I pick the books I want to read, and then we fucking talk about them with the people that wrote them. Today we talk to J.D. Chandler, who along with Teresa Griffin Kennedy, wrote the book Murder and Scandal in Prohibition Portland, Sex, Vice, and Misdeeds in Mayor Baker's Reign. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am speaking with J.D. Chandler about his new book that he co-authored with Teresa Griffin Kennedy. It's called Murder and Scandal in Prohibition Portland. Thanks so much for coming and chatting with us about the book today, Oh, anytime. Glad to be here. So let's just go ahead and start it off. Um, Give me kind of the elevator speech. What is this book, Murder and Scandal in Prohibition Portland? Okay. Um, well, this book started with the torso murder, uh, the 1946 case of the woman's body parts found in the river who was never identified. We have pretty much identified who the victim is, but you have to go back about almost 30 years to understand why she ended up in the river the way she did and why no one ever figured out who she was. And it goes back to the story of how Mayor Baker dealt with prohibition in Portland, and that's the story that we tell in the book. Um, Portland had a very unique experience with prohibition. Um, I haven't found any other city that did it this way. In most cities, the underworld or the criminals took over parts of the city government in order to keep the liquor flowing. In Portland, we did just exactly the opposite, where the government took over the bootlegging. And we did that in a couple of ways, partly through the police bureau and police chief uh, Leon Jenkins, and partly through a character that I called the crime chief, uh, who was Bobby Evans. He was a boxing promoter who ran a, uh, uh, it was a combination boxing club cigar store down on Southwest 4th, and he basically ran the bootlegging in town. His job was not only to run the bootlegging, but just to keep organized crime under control. So he had to have a pretty strong organization himself, and he was pretty successful at it. He kept Al Capone out of town, and that was probably his main goal. So... Who was Mayor George Lewis Baker? I mean, he's, he's from the Dallas, right? Pride of the Dallas. Born in Baker. I'm born in Baker. Yeah. Or no, maybe it was the Dallas. Um, yeah, you're right. From Eastern Oregon, let's say. Central Oregon. Uh, he is a fascinating character. I, I just really kind of fell in love with uh, Mayor Baker while I was doing this research. Um, he grew up, his father was a migrant worker, uh, so he grew up poor. Uh, he, um, mostly on the streets of San Francisco, his family moved around quite a bit, um, as a transient worker's family would, uh, but he, um, worked on the streets of San Francisco as a newsboy. And that was in part, that was a key to his success. Um, cause he kind of worked his way into the theaters from there and he started doing small roles in San Francisco theater. He moved to Portland in 1890 and, um, became like one of the biggest theater stars in town. Um, and I found an, a very early picture of him after, after the book, so we couldn't use it in the book. But uh, he's a young, tall man with a real dark mustache and piercing black eyes. He was a very handsome man when he was young. Um, he wasn't so handsome as he got old, <laughs> but he was lovable. Um, and he was a matinee idol. And that's the basis of his popularity, was his acting 
and also his management ability because he did very quickly work his way into theater management. And by 1900, he was the most successful theater manager in Oregon. Uh, he owned the Baker Theater in Portland. He owned the Baker City Opera House in Baker. And um, he had the, the everything's Baker with this guy because <laughs> he had the Baker Theater Company as well. Uh, and they were the most popular theater company that toured the state. So very popular in terms of entertainment. Uh, he was also a huge booster. He uh, joined clubs like any club that he could find, he joined. In fact, uh, I think I say in here in his original campaign literature in 1917, 25 organizations that he listed himself as a member of. Uh, so he was a joiner, a booster. If you've read Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis, I think that really captures who George Baker was. He was a promoter and a booster. He wanted Portland to be a big, powerful city, and he did a lot to make that happen. He was also a really enthusiastic car guy, um, and he was involved with the Portland Auto Club and had a car at least as early as 1903 um, and was one of the early auto automobile enthusiasts in town, and that kind of was a key to his uh, uh, mayor mayorship as well. And when was he mayor? Of um, he was elected in 1917, took office in 1918, and he served until 1933. So he was the longest serving mayor up to that time, and the only one who's even matched him is Terry Schrunk, who also served four terms. So uh, longest serving Portland mayor. Um, he was on the city council for a long time before that. Uh, I think his first, first election to city council was like 1898, um, and he's, he was off and on. He didn't get elected every time. But uh, up until 1917, he was on the council all the way through. So absolutely, just kind of in the, in the, the record, the argosy of Portland history, Mayor Baker is absolutely deserving. Absolutely. That. He's a very important figure. Now, I'm going to uh, read a quote here from your book. And again, you and Teresa mm -hmm. co-authored this, so she may have written it, but you're going to get the blame here and there throughout <laughs> the day. So. Uh, Mayor Baker saw the trouble the city had in trying to enforce the law and he liked to drink with his friends. His unique plan was to take control of bootlegging in the city. Through police chief Leon Jenkins, the Portland Police Bureau took control of liquor distribution and only the approved speakeasies that made regular payments and avoided violence as much as possible were allowed to operate. So again, we're talking about Prohibition Portland, yes. and there's a lot going on in that statement. Yes. Let's, let's unpackage that a little bit. Okay. Tell us some more about that. Okay. Well, yes, I did write that. <laughs> uh, this has been my main thesis since, uh, since I started researching this stuff, is that Mayor Baker had two goals um, as mayor where Prohibition was concerned. Number one, he wanted the city to have a top-level reputation for enforcing the law. And number two, he wanted to keep liquor available for himself and his, and his friends. So they seem to be conflicting goals, but if you know how prohibition worked in the rest of the country, it was pretty normal. It's the way a lot of people thought about prohibition, is they wanted to look good, but they also wanted to keep drinking. And uh, Mayor Baker was maybe the most successful at doing that. Um, you know, if you look at the other mayors on the West Coast, the mayor of Seattle went to jail uh, for working with, pro with bootleggers. The mayor of Los Angeles had to resign over this. Uh, the sheriff of Washington County went to jail. A lot of elected officials were getting in big trouble over this. And so Baker was taking a big chance with what he did. But he was very successful with it because no one has even questioned this until now. 
And you also state that the alcohol stored in the central precinct basement became the main storehouse for booze and the mayor's liquor cabinet. I've heard this before. Yeah. It's, so tell us, tell us a little yeah. bit about that. This is a pervasive, and it's always been more or less rumor up to this point. Uh, the IWW talked about this. Uh, some police officers talked about it. Um, even some city council members have mentioned it. Uh, Kim Bart McCall mentioned it kind of in passing in his books. Um, but we pretty much proved it with uh, the book by Floyd Marsh, who was uh, head of the prohibition detail for several years. Um, and he taught and he describes delivering liquor from the central precinct to the city hall in uniform in a police car. <laughs> he also uh, talks about a harrowing night when he had to make a delivery to a city councilman's uh, country home out near Mount Hood and he almost got caught uh, because policemen were going to jail over this too. Uh, so it was not a it was not a light thing that they were doing. They, um, people took prohibition very seriously. People died over this. People went to jail for a long time, pretty much like our drug war. But the Portland police were absolutely involved in the distribution of liquor during Prohibition to approved speakeasies. That's very clear. Um, and it was mainly, I'm not going to say that the whole police department was involved with it because they probably weren't. Um, Leon Jenkins kept himself insulated from it, but we do have documentation that he knew what was going on and he was in on the details. Um, the documentation we have is from 1930, but it's pretty clear from the letters that we found that it was no new surprise for for Jenkins. He knew what was going on, and he has always had the reputation as a great enforcer of prohibition, one of our best police chiefs, the most honest, le least crooked police chiefs. All of that is lies. Um, that's, that's not the truth, and we can prove it. <laughs> um, he worked through uh, a police captain named Frank Irvin, who was head of the traffic detail, um, he was kind of the all-purpose troubleshooter. Any dirty work that Chief Jenkins needed, Irvin was the one who took care of it for him. Um, so that insulated the chief pretty heavily. And Irvin came out of the, motor, the original motorcycle squad. Um, and so I found, while I was doing this, I found that a lot of the officers who were involved uh, with the bootlegging were either from the vice squad itself, uh, who were responsible for enforcing prohibition, or they were from the motorcycle squad. And that, I think, is Irvin's influence. Now, you do state that there's no, and I'm going to quote, smoking gun right. evidence to prove that Baker was right. directly aligned with the bootleggers. Right. I can't say, I, I don't have documentation that Baker knew exactly what was going on and he was given the orders. Uh, that's just not provable at this point. Um, but it's very clear from the results, from the involvement of high-level city officials, Baker had to have known what was going on, especially since he was drinking steadily all through that time. Now, Lola Baldwin, she's the namesake, of course, of Lola's room at the McMinnimans Crystal Ballroom property. And I've, I've done quite a bit of research on Lola. I've got some issues with Lola. Tell us a bit about dear, dear Lola. <laughs> I love Lola Baldwin. She was a prohibitionist. She was a Puritan, very straight-laced. Very, She believed in moral policing. In fact, um, during World War I, she worked for the federal government enforcing what they called moral martial law on the West Coast, uh, trying to keep prostitution, drinking, and gambling out, out of the military bases. With limited success, obviously, because you can't really control those things with law. But she really believed that you could, and she tried really hard to do it. Uh, she was a hard worker. Um, but she was not... A type of person that I think I would have liked 
Uh, she she had a very straight-laced view of the world. Um, she hated the IWW. She thought the IWW were scum, and uh, she wanted to see them all thrown in jail or, or as Mayor Baker liked to say, exterminated. Um, so, yeah, she's problematic. Uh, she's very important in police history because she's the second woman police officer in the country and the most successful and the most influential because not only did she set up the Women's Protective Division here in Portland, but she set up Women's Pr Protective Divisions in cities all over the West. Um, so she was a very influential police officer. Um, but by, what was it, 1922 or 24, when she finally retired early, uh, she was completely discouraged with the Portland Police Bureau. Um, and part of it was their involvement in the bootlegging. She thought that the police bureau was not doing its job and was not the proper force. And she, she left the police bureau very discouraged, and she may have left Portland at that point. Uh, Teresa did the research on, on the end of her life, so I don't know where she ended up. But uh, she may have even left Portland in complete discouragement at that point. That seems to be kind of a, uh, a typical thing for Portland activists to do. <laughs> now, of course, we can't take away the the wonderful things that Lola did mm -hmm. oh, yeah. to to so many troubled sure. girls that were in this town, and she saved them from the clutches of what they termed white slavery. Yes, at the and time. she did. You know, absolutely. Um, the, the women and, that she helped, she changed their lives. But on page thirty six uh, in your book, it's written: uh, Lola expressed disappointment and disapproval. It was what she viewed to be a disintegration of public and personal morality and integrity she's really a judge of yes. morality isn't yes. she she really felt that she was the one who could make moral judgments for the community and enforce those judgments she didn't want women smoking no nope. she didn't like the flapper lifestyle nope. the fashions no nope. she didn't like uh, a lot of the things women becoming more vocal she thought that was wrong she was against dancing uh, she fought wars against the dance halls in town uh, over their immoral dances um, she was a real strong op opponent of prostitution and pimps. And the thing that, that she's most valuable for is she saw the real roots of prostitution and where it comes from. And it's the vulnerability of poor women uh, and the vulnerability of working women. And she was a strong advocate for worker safety, uh, workers training for women, employment for women. So she, it's very problematic. It's like Oswald West is another of these characters who very progressive but also very regressive at the same time. And that was kind of the, almost the point of the progressive movement at this point. And that's what makes history so goddamn fun because <laughs> it's just not simple. It's not black and white. There's this gray. I agree. The bad guys are good. The good guys are bad. And uh, that it does make it fun. <laughs> Now, we're going to move on from Lola, of course, dear, dear Lola. We should really do a chat about her one I would night love at to. Lola's room. We I should, would love we to. We should talk to I, I, She's a character that I really enjoy. And I've... It's odd for me because I'm I'm not an opponent of carrying guns, but all of my favorite Portland women carried guns. Lola Baldwin, Marie Equi, uh, uh, Dottie Duguid, all of them carried guns. And so I don't know what that's about. <laughs> now, you talk about Mayor Lane, mm -hmm. not to be confused with Mayor Baker, and the difficulties that he had with vice elements in town. You said that the powerful businesses and saloon owners, not to mention those who operated houses of prostitution and speakeasies, maintained the real control over the financial and social agendas of the city. Yes. Now, this happened in Portland for decades, yes. correct? Yes, and it probably is still happening. Um, the city was based on this right from the start. 
um, all of the great fortunes from Portland based on alcohol, gambling, and prostitution at some level. Um, all of the property owners, the you know, all of the guys who got the streets named after them and who are considered to be founders of the city own buildings where prostitution, gambling, and drinking went on. Um, so the basis of Portland's power has always been this. Um, but at the same time, publicly, we've rejected that. So uh, Portland has always been a very two-faced city, presenting an image to the public as we're a very good town, a good place to raise your children, safe. But we have this other side that is highly dangerous and a lot of fun. <laughs> now, during Prohibition, uh, speakeasies operated wide open in the North End, or what we today call Old Town. And you also say that, again, uniformed officers made liquor deliveries from the evidence room of the Central Precinct to City Hall. So again, yeah. during Prohibition, if you were playing the game with the right authorities, with the right people who are owning these establishments, you could do what you chose. Correct? And that's pretty much true. And that's been pretty much the case in Portland from the 1850s to the 1960s, at least. Um, I think it goes on long, long past that and probably is still going on today. Personally, I think we have the most corrupt city government that we've had in a generation right now. Now, again, getting back to the time of our tale, there's several incidents of liquor evidence disappearing from Multnomah <laughs> County Courthouse. It's it's comical. It's it's very comical to read. Because how can you be charged if there's no evidence, right? <laughs> they managed to do it a couple of times, actually. But it, it's very difficult to charge someone with illegal booze if there's no illegal booze. Uh, but yeah, and, and 1916 was the year that things went a little bit crazy at the Multnomah County Courthouse. We have two cases, at least, of juries drinking the evidence. In one they convicted and the other one they didn't convict uh, because there was no evidence. Uh, the one where they convicted, they said they had to drink it to make sure it was real. Um, you know, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, you could say that's that's a legal argument. In another case, a judge drank the evidence himself and defended his right to do so in court. Uh, the most comical, I think, is the secret tap in the sewer line. Uh, because at that point, they were doing the, the dumping. Uh, they would dump barrels of beer, barrels of whiskey into the sewer in the courtyard of the courthouse. And so it was a big public display. Look at all the good work that we're doing. We're getting rid of this booze. They pour it down the sewer. Somebody, they never identified who, had installed a secret tap so they could go down in the basement and they could remove all of the liquor that was poured into the sewer. Now, what that did to the flavor, I don't have any idea. <laughs> yeah, see, I read that in the book, and the first thing I thought was fucking gross. Yeah, Ew. I would not want to drink Ew. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again... But uh, you, if you drank that, you didn't know where it came from. Exactly. <laughs> so... What we're going to talk a little bit about now are the Pullman Porters. That's a ah. fascinating story that you did. And the Golden West Hotel and the role that it played. And, of course, the Golden West Hotel, the building still stands mm -hmm. today. It's down on Northwest Broadway in Everett. Uh, there's really good interpretive displays yes. right in the windows yeah. uh, of John's Cafe. Don't necessarily go into your angle on this, but right. tell about that black neighborhood in Portland and how important it was. So tell us about the Pullman Porters. Well, first of all, what is... Bonded liquor. Okay. What's bonded whiskey? Okay. Bonded whiskey is the highest quality. It's the good stuff. Um, and it was very rare. After they made booze illegal in Oregon, 1916, it became very difficult to get your hands on bonded whiskey. So when I go to the liquor store now, essentially I'm buying bonded You're buying bonded, bonded whiskey. Yeah, you're buying the good stuff. Um, what we had that was easy to get was the bootleg, uh, the, um, what did they call it? The... Um, 
kind of the white lightning. White lightning, the right? The the home the homebrew moonshine. That's mm-hmm. that's the word mm-hmm. I was looking for. And that was available pretty regularly. It always has been available, especially in Chinatown. Uh, they had what they called Chinese gin, which was not anything like gin, but it was a uh, uh, moonshine. Uh, also, a lot of the uh, a lot of the rural communities were distilling their own moonshine too. Very very common in those days, all around the country. Um, so it was not that difficult to get your hands on bad liquor, but it was fairly difficult to get your hands on good liquor. That's where the Pullman Porters came in. And this, to me, this is my favorite story of Prohibition. I, I love the Pullman Porters. These were black men. Uh, they worked for the railroads. They were secretly organizing a union at this time. This was um, A. Philip Randolph's Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. So they were in a secret union organizing campaign. These guys really stuck together, very inventive. Um, you know, these were uh, what did uh, um, Booker T. Washington call them? The top top ten percent of the African American community. In fact, Pullman Porter was the the most prestigious job that a black man could really aspire to at this time. So if you got those jobs, you stayed in them, and you worked with your brothers to protect each other. Um, now, the Southern Pacific Railroad came through uh, to Portland in the late 1880s, and it brought a lot of African Americans to town, and it was served by Pullman porters. In 1916, when they made booze illegal, those porters took a lot of abuse from their customers if they couldn't serve if they couldn't serve them liquor. And after you got across the Oregon border, it was against the law to serve liquor, so they were taking a lot of abuse. And these guys took a great deal of abuse, racist names. Sometimes they'd be assaulted. Um, so in order to protect themselves, they had to keep the liquor flowing. And they did. They were very inventive about the way they did it, too. Um, so it became the Southern Pacific Railroad, also the Northern Pacific to some extent, um, that was coming from Chicago. But the Southern Pacific from San Francisco became the main pipeline for bonded liquor in Portland. And... Um, it, the ring was run by a powerful group of white people in San Francisco and Portland. Liquor dealers and ex-liquor dealers were the main guys who were running this. Um, the Tillamook Kid and the Fox, they all had these uh, bootlegger names. <laughs> the bootlegger culture is as interesting as our gangster culture we see today or when I was a kid. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, they've got their nicknames, they've got their personalities and, you know, their uh, habitual crimes. You know, you can tell who was running certain crimes because of what they liked. Uh, Little Dutch Herman liked to kill people, so he ran a murder ring. You know, uh, other people, Royden Enloe, considered himself a businessman, so he did extortion and slot machines. You know, so uh, it's kind of fun to match personalities with crimes. But... Uh, In 1918, the upper management of the Porter's Ring was arrested in a series of raids. It happened in San Francisco, Salem, and in Portland, and they arrested something like 14 or 15 people. Um, A fascinating character was involved in this, Barnett Goldstein, uh, who was the uh, federal prosecutor at that time. He ran the the warrants and the raids, and, and it was his case. He later, in 1923, became Portland's first radio star as uh, the grand schmooze on the Hoot Owls program. Uh, so <laughs> that story's not in this book. It's on my blog uh, because it just didn't fit. But uh, I love that when I find a character who shows me a side of himself that 
nobody really realizes. Uh, and he's definitely one because Barney Goldstein not only was the federal prosecutor who busted the Pullman Porter's ring, but he was also a world famous donut dunker. <laughs> that's great. I think that's pretty cool. That's great. <laughs> but what happened was arresting the top leadership of the Pullman Porters didn't stop the liquor from flowing. What it did is it allowed, allowed the city to kind of take control of that liquor. And the city being Portland, Mayor Baker, Mayor Baker and, and Chief Jenkins and Bobby Evans, our crime chief. Right. Um, but it was uh, because it was a black organization, it had to have black leadership, too. And that was originally after the arrest of the, of the upper management. Yam Wallace was the guy. Uh, he pushed his partner, John Lowe, got kind of pushed out of it. And he becomes a very interesting character because he certainly had a grudge against the Pullman Porters. Um, and he um, remained in the bootlegging business, but he also was heavily into armed robbery. And so what he liked to do is rob the people who were making the most money off of the Pullman Porter's ring. Uh, so he pulled robberies at like Birdlegs uh, Roadhouse, and uh, he may have been behind the robbery at, at 12 Mile House. Um, I'm not sure of that. Uh, I don't know who pulled that one. But uh, he liked to, he was getting his revenge on, on Yam Wallace is what he was doing. But Yam didn't last for too long. Yam Wallace was a muscle man. He was a big, intimidating guy. And um, he met his match in Tom Johnson. Now, Tom Johnson worked for Yam as a distributor. And uh, he's, Tom Johnson is a great character. He Fascinating. Is. I just love this guy. Um, he was very inventive. He was a combat veteran from World War I. He was very tough. Um, he showed himself to be quite a, a dangerous character at times, although he was not overtly dangerous. Although I've heard some things about his relationship with the Undertaker establishment up in North Portland that when he killed somebody, they disappeared. <laughs> you don't know about any murders that Tom Johnson was involved with because it was completely quiet. Uh, and that's come out... Uh, through a lot of different ways. It's kind of fascinating tracking this guy down. But he was one of the most inventive of the bootleggers. Uh, he was arrested at one point with um, a big overcoat with 12 pints of whiskey hanging on strings inside. Uh, he hid uh, illegal whiskey in his garden, buried in his garden under wood piles. Um, he was a very inventive guy. He was, I don't know that he was involved with it, but one of the things that the Pullman Porters did, which I always found fascinating, was the hand flask. It was a new invention. It was a jeweler in San Francisco who put these together. But there were tiny little flasks. They'd hold about three tablespoons of booze. You could hide them in your hand, and you could buy them from a Pullman porter for 50 cents. Uh, so a surreptitious form of drinking that I thought was really fun. <laughs> now, Portland became the central distribution point for bonded whiskey on the West Coast. That's what they say. That's what Floyd Marsh says. That's what... Uh, uh, a lot of people actually have said that about Portland. Kim Bart McCall says that too. Um, but yeah, and, it, and it's really clear that it was coming in. It was coming in in a couple of different ways, partly through the Pullman Porters and partly through boats. Savi's Island was one of the big areas. Also, uh, St. John's was a big area for bringing boats in. And that, that goes way back because uh, opium smuggling and illegal immigrant smuggling happened through both of those areas all through the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, so it just, they just changed their product. 
And then, of course, a lot of that booze came through Union Station, yes. Union Depot, which yes. to this day continues to have great parties in yes. its vault. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now, you write a bit about Mayor Baker's secret police. Yes. Tell us about the secret police. Now, this was – it's constitutionally very scary, but in terms of Mayor Baker's goals, genius. Uh, the secret police were people who were compromised in certain ways. A lot of them had been arrested for booze and had uh, booze charges hanging over their heads. Uh, so they were compromised people who would work surreptitiously, surreptitiously for the police collecting evidence. And the idea was to ferret out any illegal um, bootlegging that was not city sanctioned and arrest them. So any unapproved Any bootleggers. unapproved bootleggers, yes. Uh, so they had to have very good intelligence in order to make this work. The secret police were that. They also went beyond that. Uh, Floyd Marsh, in his book, talks about the fact that he had people that he could call on to do anything short of murder. Personally, I suspect that they didn't draw the line there. Uh, Floyd Marsh whitewashes a little bit. He tells the truth. He tells what he did. He tells what, what happened. But he does whitewash the whole thing a little bit. He, he says that Leon Jenkins wasn't involved with any of it, that uh, anything that, he, that Jenkins did that was wrong was because of pr pressure from, the, from Baker and other higher-ups. Um, so he's whitewashing a bit. Um, he wrote his book in the 70s. Um, history from the 70s is a little bit compromised when you're talking about this era because people were still alive. People were still not telling the full story. Um, but he does tell a lot. Um, but they, uh, the secret police were used not only to collect evidence for search warrants, but they were used to set people up for arrests. Uh, they were used for blackmail purposes. Uh, uh, burglaries were a, a standard part of city operating procedure at that point, and the secret police handled most of that. Um, I haven't pinned any murders on any of them. And this was all to benefit Mayor Baker's agenda and exactly. his career. Correct? Exactly. The idea was we not only want to keep the booze flowing, but we want to have a reputation as the best enforcers of prohibition. And we did that. By 1920, Portland was considered to be the driest city in the, in the country. Total lie, but it was the perception, and that's what counted at that point. And so then those unapproved retailers of the liquor that were busted of course that would be in the media and mm -hmm. the newspapers exactly. everybody would hear all about mm -hmm. what a good job chief jenkins police exactly. department is doing and they focused mainly on lower level bootleggers occasionally they'd get somebody big but it was um part of the thing that that jb and i found on doing portland on the take was that people who were involved in this illegal system had a kind of a tax where they had to be arrested once in a while you had to take a bust uh, just to kind of keep your status. And it was a way to give give something back to the city. And I think that that was going on then, too, because every once in a while you'll see a big place get busted. Um, Birdlegs Reed got busted a few times. And he was definitely in the system. He was making his payoffs. But he was obviously paying taxes through arrest occasionally, although he never really faced arrest himself. And then so Mayor Baker's secret police that are going on doing these nefarious activities and so on. Can we consider that policing? Well, that's a that's a good question. It has been considered policing. It's been a big part of American policing. In fact, I just watched um, I read Betty Metzger's book on the media, Pennsylvania um, FBI office burglary in 1971. And I just watched a documentary on it yesterday. 
that's what the FBI was doing with their COINTELPRO. It was basically the same thing that the uh, Mara Secret Police were doing, except their targets were radicals rather than bootleggers. So um, personally, I don't think that agents provocateur and intelligence gathering and those things are part of police work. Um, but it certainly has been a part of police work all along and still is. And maybe intelligence ca uh, gathering is justified. I don't know about that. So how well, kind of coming 3,000-foot view here, how well was prohibition enforced in Portland? <laughs> well, it depends on what you mean by that. Um, if you mean uh, the perception of Portland as a dry city, uh, the price of booze was high in Portland, uh, higher than anywhere else on the West Coast, um, those things are indicators that we were enforcing the law very well. The fact that anybody could get booze kind of shows that that was all a lie. <laughs> so the, it depends on what the real purpose of prohibition was. Personally, I think only naive people thought that if we pass a law against booze, we can get rid of booze. I think that the real purpose of prohibition was to increase the power of the police. And in that way, it was very successful. You co-authored your last book with J.B. Fisher, mm -hmm. and this current book was co-authored with Teresa Griffin Kennedy. Mm -hmm. How is that process different between these two authors? It's interesting. Uh, both of them are, are great writers, yes. and, I, and that's one thing that was very important to me. Both of them are also very tenacious researchers, and that's what originally got me involved with them. The writing was just kind of a little extra bonus on top of it. Uh, but I asked Teresa uh, to look into the life of Anna Schrader. Uh, because I had the feeling that she was going to get involved, personally involved with the, with the person. And I knew that if she did get personally involved, she would track down every bit of information that it was possible to get on her. And that's exactly what she did. The fact that she could also write the story in a compelling way was an extra bonus. Now with JB, it was the same thing. He, he brought some evidence to me uh, that the two unsolved murders, Roman Podlis and Pierre Schultz, were connected to the Joanne Dewey case. Um, and so he had done a lot of the research already by the time we proposed the book. And so it was his research that attracted me to working with him, and his writing just really solidified that. In fact, JB and I are working on a new book together. Well, that's one of my future questions. So let's just ask okay. now, what's, what's in the future? <laughs> well, tentatively, we're calling it The Mean Streets of Portland, and it's going to be a look at the impact of the automobile on Portland. Um, I've been really fascinated with the development of car culture in Portland and in traffic enforcement. And JB, through his research into the 50s and 60s, has become just fascinated with the taxi industry. Uh, the taxi industry is similar to bootlegging in the fact that it's a legal business with a real strong illegal side. And the taxi drivers um, in the 50s, when uh, he's been investigating the um, Oregon State Police investigation into the vice scandal which i think we're going to feature as a podcast episode i hope so series. because he's got fascinating information and it's a whole different story than we've been presented with about this vice scandal from 57 and one of the main sources for the oregon state police were taxi drivers so uh, because these guys driving taxis they knew where the booze was they knew where the women were they knew where the uh, drugs were gambling in a sense a portland taxi driver was an all-around vice caterer so he got interested in the taxi business. I got interested in the traffic detail and traffic enforcement, and we kind of put them together. And uh, we're both starting to do presentations that are going to uh, introduce the book. He's doing a presentation shortly on the women cab drivers of World War II. 
And I just did a podcast or I did a blog post on um, the summer of 1909, which is like the first real major impact of cars on Portland. Um, I found that the Portland Auto Show of March 1909, we had about 550 cars in Portland before. After the auto show, we had about 3,000 cars in Portland. So that summer, suddenly we had this huge influx of cars and brand new drivers. And we had, starting at the end of June 1909 and going through September, we had 17 major car accidents and um, close to a dozen fatalities. So people started to realize, okay, cars are a dangerous thing. We're going to need to start regulating them. We already had some speed laws. We had some traffic laws, uh, like driving on the right side of the road, things like that. But it became, uh, but there was nobody enforcing them. So it was kind of a, a dilemma for the city. And so this is where we're starting. We're starting with the beginning of car culture, and we're going to bring it all, all the way up to the, the uh, controversy over Uber. Uh, because JB and I both feel that this is a fight that we already fought about 100 years ago uh, with the Jitneys. And uh, it's like we gave in this time. <laughs> it's like, okay, we've regulated taxis for 100 years. Forget that. We're going to just go back to no regulation. So it's an interesting question. I think that's where we're going to end. Also, uh, my uncle and my cousin have both been involved in the taxi industry. So uh, my uncle drove a taxi for Broadway cab all through the 60s and 70s, and he was a dispatcher for many years. So I think it'll be interesting to talk with him about uh, what was going on in Portland at that time. Well, getting back to murder and scandal and prohibition Portland, what challenges did you face in researching the book? Well, one of the big challenges is that this stuff has been secret for so long. Um, it's difficult to find the information. Um, you know, I typically in my research, I start with the Oregonian because it's easy. Uh, it's digitized. I can search their database really extensively and they report it on just about everything. Um, so you can find out a lot from that. The Oregonian has a very strong bias, though. <laughs> always has, always will. And so you have to account for that, which means that once you have the Oregonian story, you have to really start researching. But it gives you a lot of places to go. Um, you know, we found uh, uh, the book by Floyd Marsh, uh, the Portland cop who ran the prohibition detail between 1924 and, or he was on the detail in 24, he ran it between 1927 and 1929. And he was pretty disgusted with the city and the way they'd handled prohibition at that point. So he kind of told it like it was. Although he wrote this book in 1976, and he, I don't think he felt safe to say everything that he knew. Uh, but he said a lot. Uh, we also found a book uh, by the editor of the Ku Klux Klan newspaper, um, a book called Masks Off, that's only available in the Central Library. You have to go there to read it. But he pretty much tells the real story of the Ku, -Ku, uh, Ku Klux Klan in Portland. Um, and that was really fascinating to me, because everyone's always been interested in it, and we kind of know the outlines of that story, but we didn't really know the truth of it. So that was fun to, to find out. But um, And then just digging into the police personnel files, especially through this Anna Schrader case, that's what gave us the smoking guns against uh, Chief Jenkins. And what they are, are two letters that Frank Irvin wrote to Jenkins in 1930 about a, a situation dealing with Anna Schrader. And it's very clear from those letters that Jenkins knew exactly what was going on. Um, and it's the first clue that we got that Jenkins may have approved the murder of Anna Schrader. Uh, so the torso murder case may have been a murder that the police chief approved. And we'll look forward to hearing more <laughs> about that one, too. 
Well, thanks so much, JD, for coming down and chatting. Oh, I'm glad to. I love to. Um, people, of course, I bought my copy at Powell's. People can find it at Powell's. Where else can they find it? Um, the uh, Oregon Historical Society bookstore sells a lot of them. Costco sells a lot, uh, and they're cheap there. <laughs> Excellent. We'll be sure to provide a commerce link on Great. this episode's page so that people can just click Great. through and purchase the book. And maybe maybe we can get that uh, photo of a young Mayor Baker from you as well <laughs> to put up on there. I, yeah, I have just a, a Xerox copy yeah. of it. But yeah, yeah, I can scan that for you because it's Excellent. beautiful. It's uh, He's standing in front of the High Lake Theater. He's a tall, beautiful man. And, you know, you look at him in 1917 when he ran for office, he was getting kind of fat. Um, he was still a good-looking guy, but he was not a matinee idol when he got elected to mayor. But when he came to town, yeah, see, there he is. He's yeah. a good-looking guy. Definitely. But uh, you see him about uh, 20 years before this. He was a very attractive man. He had a piercing dark eyes, a nice mustache, very tall and thin. You can see why people loved him. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jason. You're welcome. Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 is a production of ORHistory.com. It is written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available by request. We hope that you agree that today's episode contains some kick-ass Oregon history. If you like what you hear, you should give us money to make more. Visit ORHistory.com to learn how you can give us money once or over and over again. Follow us on the internet, Twitter, at Oregon underscore history. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram, too, at Kick-Ass Oregon History. As always, visit us on the web at ORHistory.com or send an email directly to historian Doug Kank Crispin. Oregon historian at gmail.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. They wanted to look good, but they also wanted to keep drinking. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. History.com.